Lord, it is good for us to be here. Amen. Where have you seen the glory of the Lord on the mountain? Where does the metaphor of the mountain meet you this morning? When in your life have you experienced the radiance of God's light and glory? Perhaps you remember a glow surrounding your spouse at first encounter, or the first time you held your baby boy or girl. Maybe it was the sense of satisfaction you felt after achieving an academic or professional goal or paying off a debt. Or perhaps you have been taken to the mountain through the raw and tender graces of receiving forgiveness undeserved or watching a loved one released from their suffering in death. It is impossible to know exactly what Peter, James, and John experienced on their Mount of Transfiguration, as often we find in our own experiences, faith, that is, our ability to perceive God's presence in every season, faith matures with time, not unlike fine wine. And so I wonder if the benefit of hindsight did not magnify the gospel's account of the transfigured Savior within the church's memory. While we may in the moment have a vague sense of wanting to hold on to such glimpses of euphoric glory, it is often only after deeper reflection and contemplation that we come to fully appreciate the divine grace in such experiences. This encounter today comes at the precipice of Peter's own wrestling with faith. Matthew sets this scene six days later, six days later, in reference to Peter's infamous confession and rebuke. While Peter had witnessed enough of Jesus' ministry to recognize him as the Messiah, he had not yet accepted the reality of what that will mean for Jesus and for him. As quickly as Jesus names Peter the rock of the church, Jesus chastises him. Get behind me, Satan. Peter is ready to follow Jesus into the clouds of glory at mountain height, but not yet into the valley of the cross and suffering. And yet for the human and divine one we know in Christ, there is no untangling of the two. You know, it would have been easy for Jesus just to cash out at this point, end on a high note, quit while he's ahead, make a grand exit, and ascend to his retirement in heaven at the right hand of God. But Jesus knows that he still has work to do down the mountain. In fact, this is not the first mountain we've journeyed to with Jesus in this epiphany season. Matthew's gospel, thoroughly rooted in the tradition, in the Jewish tradition of its audience, spends much of the previous chapters aligning Jesus in the tradition of Moses. For several weeks, we focused on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in many ways an allusion to Moses' own transfiguration on Mount Sinai when he received the Ten Commandments. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he expounds upon the Hebrew law as he describes an upside-down kingdom in which the blessings of God belong not to the rich and the powerful, 
but to the lonely, lowly, and the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so rather than insulate himself from the pain and struggle and sufferings of the world, Jesus enters into them. Rather than stay safe and secure on the mountain, he turns his face towards Jerusalem, towards the city. True to his namesake, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, takes up his cross, not only accompanying the poor and meek, but becoming poor and meek and helpless on a cross in an act of ultimate solidarity with the marginalized and the outcast. Just as Moses led the people across the Red Sea and through the wilderness from slavery to freedom, Jesus now leads us into the wilderness, into the wilderness, not around or over, but through the wilderness on the ultimate journey from despair to hope, from death into life. If it is not obvious, the church here is about to take a hard turn down the mountain and into Lent. So come back later this week for more. But before we trek down that trail, our scriptures this morning leave us with a powerful reminder. As the voice of God thunders on the holy mountain, This, Jesus, is my child, my beloved. These words echo the words spoken by God at the baptism of Jesus in the river Jordan. And these words gesture towards one of the foundational assertions of Christian witness, that each of us is God's own beloved, not for anything we could ever accomplish or achieve but simply by our very being created by God in God's own image. An unwaveringly radical assertion in a world that assigns value to humans based on our pecking order in any number of social categories. The geography of the Holy Land amplifies this claim. Simon and about 40 members of this community are currently in the Holy Land, where they too will make pilgrimage to the Jordan River to commemorate Jesus' baptism and ours. And the remarkable thing about the River Jordan is that it flows into the Dead Sea. If any of you have been to the Dead Sea? Well, you may know that because of the scorching Middle Eastern heat and various ecological factors... The Dead Sea is actually evaporating and shrinking at an alarming rate, nearly three feet a year. Some scientists even predict that it will completely dry up within a few decades. And the effect is that of an increasingly toxic level of salt, creating a thick and sludgy water capable of blinding and burning the skin off of unsuspecting pilgrims and tourists who come to float in its reservoirs, especially those who make the mistake of shaving any part of their body before entry. I can't attest. (laughs) But the most interesting thing, the most interesting thing about the Dead Sea, and certainly a contributing factor to its own demise, is that the Dead Sea is literally 
the lowest place on the face of the earth. The lowest elevation. Let that sink in. No pun intended. In the words of Marvin Gaye, ain't no mountain high, ain't no valley low, ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you. Jesus got into those waters with us, for us, to show us the extent to which we are loved. And whether in the lowest of lows or the highest of highs, my friends, the chorus remains the same. This is my child, my beloved in you, John, in you, Amy, in you, Jane, I am well pleased. True for Jesus, true of us. Here on the mountain, the voice of God continues, this, Jesus, is my son, my beloved in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Trembling in fear and awe from this extraordinary revelation, the disciples Peter, James, and John fall prostrate to the ground, hearkening back to Moses' encounter in Exodus 33, in which God tells him that no one who sees the face of the Lord will live. Reminiscent also of the Garden of Eden in Genesis, when Adam and Eve fashioned clothes for themselves in humanity's first attempt to hide from God. And yet, in contrast, Jesus' next words to them are not words of shame, judgment, or condemnation. Rather, Jesus says to them, to us, my friends, get up. Do not be afraid. This is my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The world is filled with so many competing voices, vying for our attention, fighting for our allegiance. This is certainly true in a campaign season such as the one we find ourselves in. Still in a world filled with so many voices making appeals to our deepest fears and insecurities, Jesus tells us a different story. Get up and do not be afraid. Will we listen to that voice? Dear friends, following Jesus does not promise us impenetrable security, nor will it insulate us from the reality of human pain and suffering. Even the most fortunate among us are not immune to death. Try as we may to capture, contain, and control the fleeting euphoria of mountaintop altitude, Jesus invites us to pitch the tent of our faith, not in the changes and chants of superficial comforts, but to ground our hope in God's faithfulness to us in every season and circumstance, on the mountain and in the valley, in life and in death. Indeed, God is continually calling us into the future to let go of whatever it is that is holding us back, that we might increase our faith in God's faithfulness to us. This is no doubt a challenging and thought-provoking text as we as a community consider how and where we will pitch our tents on this block as we seek the future God dreams for us. Because if we're completely honest in our reading and reckoning with the Gospels, the one who turned tables at the temple is seldom impressed with our religious edifices. 
whether tangible or intangible. Upon arriving in Jerusalem, Jesus will later criticize the temple authorities for turning his father's house into a marketplace. And he will remind his disciples, enamored by the magnificent buildings and beautiful stones, that not a stone will, will be left on stone. In essence, the crux of epiphany is this. We cannot put God in a box. As we engage and continue our discernment individually and corporately about where God is calling us in the days, months, and decades ahead, I encourage us to consider, where is God calling us to let go of fear and lean into faith? Where is God calling us beyond our own self-interests and safety and security for the sake of those around us in this city and community? And what are the values that we seek to enshrine in our lives in this place? Where might we be called to take faithful risks outside the box as we trust in the faithfulness of God? I don't have the answers, but I invite you to take these questions and wonderings with you as we journey down the mountain and into the season of Lent. As we do so, may we listen to Jesus and remember his words. Get up and do not be afraid. Beloved ones, listen to him.